Hello and welcome to your Active Zagrifood podcast. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. I'm Julia Dam. And I'm Yaroslava Buchta. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from your Active's Agrifood team. This week at your Active's Agrifood podcast, food security, everyone's still talking about it, but also the Commission revises cereal production estimates due to extreme weather. And we're going to talk with the Court of Auditors representative about the outcome of their recent report on fraud in the Common Agricultural Policy. So this week, we're very happy to have a special guest, or by now a regular Rish guest. Yeah, indeed. indeed. She, she's no longer a guest. She's, uh, she's, she's part uh, of the family. You know? She's still special, but she's no longer a guest. Yeah, 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 indeed. indeed. A special person with us uh, who's not a guest. Uh, she's our, our colleague, Yaroslava Bukta. Hi, Yara. Hello. So, Yara, we're going to talk about something that you covered um, actually extensively since you started that you're active, but it's something that um, uh, was particularly um, touched on in this week uh, at the plenary at the European Parliament in uh, Strasbourg, which is, again, food security. Food security is, <laughs> is our um, um, one of the most used war- words uh, in the entire history of the agri-food team, uh, thanks to the yeah particularly after the you know over the past few months uh, because of course what's happening in ukraine but also uh yeah you remember julia there was a time in which we were wondering if uh, <laughs> if it was still an issue <laughs> yeah can you imagine now uh, food security uh is no longer the center of uh, eu agricultural policy and then boom the you ukraine know, war a, comes you know there's um uh, in in baseball, uh, there was a, a curse. The, the the Il Bambino curse uh, referred to Babe Ruth, a famous one of the most famous baseball player in the uh, Major League Baseball history. And he was basically Still a very niche reference. Super niche reference. Super niche reference. But no, I mean it's super famous because I mean it's. Uh, you know, American culture and American movies, we, we all watch them, basically. Still niche content. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was uh, this very famous uh, baseball player, probably the, the you know, the, the best of all time, Babe Ruth. And he was playing for um, uh, the Boston Red Sox. And uh, at a certain point, he basically... Uh, I think it was traded, but he, he didn't leave. It was he, he didn't leave. He, there was a transfer, and he went to the New York Yankees. And um, and apparently there was this curse that uh, because of that the Red Sox would have never won the World Series again. We're talking about uh, we are in the thirties of the past century, so it's a lot. And then after, really after 80 or 90 years, the Red Sox finally won uh, the, the World Series again. So there was this Babe Ruth uh, curse. Il Bambino, Il Bambino was the nickname of uh, Babe Ruth. Um, and we, we can say that we have the Sinkevich's curse. 
in the Irish food bubble because, uh, you know, named after the environmental commissioner, Virginio Sinkevichus, because he, he was the one saying <laughs> that food security was, was no longer an issue in Europe. So he jinxed after, it, basically. Yeah, and after, and after he said that, um, it became an issue. So, yeah, the Sinkevichus course, but... Uh, coming back to the... I'm not sure he'll be very flattered by... No, uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, I mean, we've, we've established that all the, all the commissioners are definitely listening, so uh, yeah, he'll, yeah, he'll yeah. hear this well, and he'll be, we he'll had be this, sad. We had this head of cabinet two weeks ago, Julia, you interviewed him in, <laughs> in the AgriFood podcast, so uh, a big hello to Virginius. Uh, so, Yara, what happened this week in the parliament? Yeah, so I think this week... Uh, probably proved us that food security is still an issue and a big issue, a big, big widely discussed issue. So um, the talks started, this week talks started with a recently published UN Food Security and Nutrition Report uh, saying that up to 828 million of people or nearly 10% of the world's population were affected by hunger last year in 2021. And this is 46 million more than in 2020 and 150 million more since before the COVID-19 pandemic in 2019. And so one of, one, one of the uh, reasons for such disturbing numbers is, um, is pandemic itself. But like seems like the, the picture is not very, very positive. And... Um, in 2022, the numbers might even worsen, and most probably they will worsen due to the consequences of war in Ukraine um, and due to the issues with grain exports and increased food prices, which makes it unaffordable for people, especially in poor countries, to get food and also um, unaccessible health diets, healthy diets, and so on and so on. So let's say, let's say that this... Um um, it was much awaited report, but also triggered some kind of reactions from our, uh, from our, from European lawmakers, because um, there was also a debate in the parliament on this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, during this debate, there was another highlight from uh, MEPs about the need to take uh, urgent actions. Uh, they talked a lot about development and humanitarian aid uh, to uh, the countries suffering from hunger. And also uh, they discussed a number of, of financial initiatives to support these countries. And also there was another suggestion from Romanian MEP and former EU Agriculture Commissioner Dacian Ciolos, uh, who told uh, a press conference in Strasbourg on Wednesday that development humanitarian aid should be among the priorities of 2023 EU budget. And he came up with um, an action plan of 15 medium and long-term proposals. And among all these proposals, there was one of a temporary partnership fund. Uh, the idea is to buy grain from Ukraine through European Commission and some international organizations uh, without intermediaries. Um, of, so, of, yeah. co of course, uh... Uh, you know, as you said, Charles, he, he's allowed to talk about this stuff because he was, <laughs> no, because otherwise it seems like, a, you know, a, a random MEP proposed. No, but actually Charles, uh, as, as Yara was saying, is, um, is a former um, agricultural commissioner. He was actually the, the one who negotiated the, uh, 
the current uh, common agricultural policy. The next one will start in January 2023. Also, as a Romanian, uh, a former Romania's prime minister, he also has uh, uh, quite um, uh, a big uh, role. I mean, co- considering his previous uh, expertise and experiences, um, both in the in the Romanian government and the and at the European Commission. Uh, but yeah, indeed, food security is again uh, a big topic. Uh, but also, it's also um, very much considered by uh, this, for instance, the Food, food uh, Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and uh, um, other uh, big uh, intergovernmental organization, the World Food Program. Actually, one of the uh, main uh, point of the um, of the resolution, non-binding resolution that the European Parliament uh, um, adopted on Wednesday, I think so. Uh, it's uh, it's even uh, the, it's also this request of uh, putting more money in the World Food Program, uh, which is again it's, it's a program of the United Nations. Uh, just for make an example. Uh, the uh, the the UN support, United Nations support for the regions uh, in East Africa and Middle East and the Middle East, which are the most affected by the um, the lack, of, the shortage of Ukrainian grain. Um, again, this this um, support from the United Nations is currently underfunded by ninety nine percent. Which is a lot, you know, and and the the MEPs are basically asking the Commission and the Member State to cover this funding gap in the in the United Nations humanitarian budget. Uh, as Yara was saying, uh, it's not only about Ukraine, it's not only about the commodities uh, and and markets, but it's also about uh, the situation of of the most vulnerable um, that are actually affected by uh, this uh, food price crisis. Uh, but there was also another interesting, um, interesting things to highlight that was presented this week. Uh, and Yulia, I'm calling you, and uh, you know that Yulia, the, the presence of Yulia in, the, in this episode was uh, at risk. <laughs> because yeah, the uh, the auditory presence. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was at risk because. Uh, uh, she had uh, some. Um, have you realized what kind of uh, stuff is? I don't know, like a cold or something. I don't even know. I wasn't really sick, but I just basically lost my voice. Yeah, completely. Like sick. yesterday, we had the call, and it was very. I was really worried. It was and, horrible. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe you can hear it still. I'm, I'm not sure. It's. I sound a bit hoarse, but I'll try my best to sound uh, crystal clear for you. Of course, yeah. as always, Julia, as always. Exactly. But um, there was this uh, presentation, no presentation, actually. Uh, the European Commission released uh, its usual outlook. Um, I think that they do it every three months, probably. Yeah, the last one was, in, uh, was published in the beginning of April. And this one, uh, and it's of course the the short term outlook of um, of uh, um, agricultural production and agricultural markets, uh, and uh, and in this 
like the like the the, the the previous one, they were addressing the food security concerns in this post-COVID-19 recovery, also considering the uncertainty caused by uh, the Russian invasion. And what what are the main findings, Julia? Well, it's quite interesting because if you might remember, uh, during all the many times that we've talked about food security in the context of the Ukraine war, um, basically the reaction of the EU has always been, we're going to produce more, we're going to export more to make up for this gap. And this is also what was the finding of the previous um, agricultural outlook. Um, basically saying that we expect the EU to export more grains to make up for the gap on world markets that's uh, left. I'm having, the, I'm having the report in front of me right now. And they were saying, first of all, that in 2022, the EU harvest for cereal may, might be very good one. <laughs> <laughs> might be a very good one. And for this reason, they, ex they expect... Uh, uh, EU grain export to be 30% higher compared to the, the previous marketing year. So this was the the the, the estimates, um, the, the, you know, the estimation from the commission three months ago. Exactly. And now uh, we have quite the change of weather, literally, because um, along comes a very dry spring and a very hot spring that, and also summer that um, makes the agricultural outlook look less rosy than expected three months ago. So actually this report back, backtracks on this whole thing about producing more wheat and more grain and says that uh, the EU might actually produce less grain this year than in the last year. Um, so this is quite the, the change of tone. I think it's, I don't... Do you have the number in front of you? I think it's like 1.2% less. No, 2.5, 2.5. Oh. Lower compared, uh, you know, um, lower than in 2021. It's also true that in the, in the previous uh, report, uh, Outlook, they didn't really say anything. They just say it's going to be a good harvest. Uh, but it's true that, uh, I mean, it's it's not, it's it's curious. It's not going to, it doesn't mean that we're going to, suffer hunger or whatever because all the stocks are quite high at the moment yeah exactly that's what's quite interesting about it so um there was an event yesterday that i listened to and there was actually um an official from the commission speaking there who's a socio-economic analyst in the union of um the director general for agriculture of the eu commission so the in the unit that's responsible for this agricultural outlook so she talked about these numbers quite a bit, and she was actually explaining that even though the EU will pr probably produce a bit less um, grain than last year, um, there might still be higher availability because there is so much stock. So in fact, this will help the EU meet domestic consumption needs and at the same time provide a surplus for exports, she said, as, um, as a quote, um, because the stocks are so high that there's still a lot of grain. And this week there was also the presentation of uh, an interesting report from the European Court of Auditors. Uh, it was a report uh, investigating on 
how uh, on fraud, fraudulent practices uh, in uh, in the EU farming farming subsidies program, basically the common agricultural policy, our beloved common agricultural policy. Uh, fraudulent practices, for instance, such as the illegal land grabbing. And uh, me and Yara had, um, Yara and I had the opportunity to speak uh, with uh, with um, someone working at the uh, European Court of Auditors uh, who explained uh, a bit more in detail what this report is about. Good morning and uh, thank you for the invitation. My name is Christian Snyder. I work for the European Court of Auditors for the Greek member, uh, Mr. Bilionis. I'm his head of private office and I worked on this audit report on CAP fraud. Um, so Christian, it's, um, let's start with a very general question. Uh, could you please explain why uh, the auditors decided to carry out this audit and also summarizing the main fun findings and conclusions of the report. Well, fraud is a matter of concern for citizens, and rightly so. It affects the achievement of EU objectives and means that the money is not always going to the right beneficiaries. We at the Court of Auditors contribute to the fight against fraud with our audit reports. This time we looked at the Common Agricultural Policy, the CAP, and you know that 55 billion euros are spent every year on this policy on helping farmers and rural areas. We focused on three member states, France, Italy and Slovakia, and to have a more complete overview, we also sent a survey to all the member states. Our main conclusion of, our, of the audit is that the Commission was not sufficiently proactive we asked it to dig deeper, to more effectively fight against fraud. The first step was to look at the numbers and what they were telling us. OLAF, the EU's anti-fraud body, compiles data that is sent by the member state on fraud. This gives a figure of around 0.09% of the CAP budget. We found it to be a low estimate and we explained why it did not provide a complete picture. Member states do not identify all suspicious cases and they report practices, the reporting practices they have differ. And the next step was to present the analysis of the main fraud risks affecting the CEP budget. We provided examples of beneficiaries that were simulating activities or presenting false documents. Sometimes they were concealing that they were not meeting the conditions for the subsidy. We found that the risk of fraud is higher for more complex measures. Some measures can be difficult to check, as for this example of the wine promotion measure for wine outside the EU. In the case we present, the beneficiary provided pictures that did not correspond to the, event, to the event that was being subsidized. We also point to the problem of illegal land grabbing. And to explain this notion simply, this is when a fraudster claims an EU subsidy for land he illegally obtained or that belonged to other, to other people. For instance, it could be public land or it could also be abandoned private land. Olaf has found such situations in France and Italy. 
You mentioned that uh, the, the report uh, also includes a number of suggestions to the Commission. And could you briefly outline, like summarize these suggestions for us? Yeah, yes, of course. So based on the conclusions I just presented, we made two main recommendations. And it's important to say that the Commission has accepted to implement them in the near future. The first recommendation is that the Commission should gain and share a deeper insight of fraud risks in CAP spending. In particular, the Commission should clarify the role of the certification bodies in assessing paying agencies and the fraud measures. I already explained that the Commission provided little guidance in this area. Now, regarding paying agencies, the Commission should review how they are checking land grabbing and whether the land is actually legally under the farmer's control. The second recommendation is about promoting the use of new technologies. This includes the fraud detection tools I mentioned, such as Arachne, and it's also, it's also about sharing best practices on artificial intelligence, on machine learning to identify fraud patterns. We believe that these new technologies have a key role to play in the detection of possible fraud cases. Of course, we, we were talking about the common agricultural policy um, because, I mean, this uh, audit was done on the previous program, no? So uh, I just wonder if there are also some outcomes uh, that might be useful to, um, you know, particularly um, to address the same issue in the new common agricultural policy, which is about to start. It's going to start in uh, 20, January 2023. So do you think there are tendencies uh, now that, they, that can influence the transparency of the common agricultural policy in the future? For us, as you might understand, it's a bit early to do an analysis of fraud risks of the new CAP, but we can probably draw lessons from our report. Um, under the new CAP, the risks will very much depend on how the measures are, are selected by the member states, how they will be implemented, and how the control systems will be operating. Uh, you might know that the Commission itself is in the process of preparing such a fraud risk analysis for the new CAP, but this document is not yet available. This being said, it is likely that the new CAP will finance similar types of projects as in the current period. Therefore, we could think that uh, the risks of fraud could be very similar. For example, we have found that some companies presented themselves as small businesses to receive CAP money, and you know that the CAP wants to promote small business. But in reality, these companies were part of bigger entities. We present the example of a family business we found in Poland exceeding the thresholds for support. Olaf also reported similar cases. The new CAP will continue supporting small businesses and that is why it is important to have the right tools to check the links with other companies. And this is what Arachne is intended to, intended to do. If we now think of land grabbing, which was another risk that we mentioned in the report, uh, this risk is not likely to disappear. We will continue to have most payments to farmers uh, based on the area declared. And here again, uh, what could really decrease the risk of fraud would be improvements in the control systems, and in particular, through the use of the new technologies. 
One of the report's um, highlights is that the more complex the procedures are, uh, the more fraud risks exist there. So this round of the common agriculture policy reform is arguably the most complex yet, with more power given to the member states. What are your main concerns about the increased role of the member states in decision making? Well, indeed, complexity is an issue. In the checks we do every year for our annual report on the EU budget, we have shown that the more complex measures have a higher risk of error. We find that fraud risks follow a similar pattern. The higher the complexity, the greater the fraud risk. The high risk areas cover rural development measures and market measures. They represent around 30% of the cap budget. In these areas, we find that the level of error, which also includes potential frauds, exceeds our reference value of 2%. The cases I mentioned before on small businesses, on wine promotion measures, belong to these high-risk areas. The rem remaining 70% of the CAP budget are direct payments to farmers based on farmland declared. These are generally low risk and we recognize it in our annual report. We found that the member state control systems are globally effective and that the level of error is below the 2% threshold we set ourselves. The land parcel identification system, for instance, uses satellite images or images taken from planes to check the size of the parcels and to check whether the same piece of land was not declared twice by two different farmers. But even in generally low risk areas like this one, some weaknesses in the control systems can leave gaps that fraudsters can exploit. So now to sum up and draw lessons for the new CAP, we could say that to reduce the risk of fraud, the Commission and the Member States should act on reducing the complexity of the measures. It is also very important to promote a culture of vigilance and to use the new technologies to be able to detect possible fraud cases. And a very, a very last question about the, it's more about how the, the auditors work, no? Because in a certain, um, in a certain way, even the auditors themselves pointed out that the sample size used in the report uh, was too small. No, you, you were mentioning um, um, three cases, three case studies. Uh, is it fair then to use this report to draw conclusions about the whole system and, and how it is functioning? And, and I wonder also if uh, you have plans for future monitoring of the common agricultural policy fraud risk, maybe enlarging the, uh, the sides, uh, the, the sample sides or so on. Thank you for your question. I think this is a point worth clarifying. Uh, the report uses various sources of evidence, so not just a sample, and it's overall well-founded. I have no doubt about this. There is one question to which we do not and cannot give a precise answer. And that is, you know, the key question, if you want, which everybody wants to answer, which is what is the exact amount of CAP fraud? You will understand that by its nature, Fraud is hidden and difficult to detect. And when we have a look at the, the commission data, I mentioned the 0.09% uh, that Olaf presents as level of fraud for the CEP budget. We found that this figure is low and does not provide a complete picture. 
So then we had a look at uh, what we were doing at the Court of Auditors. So you might know that every year we audit about 230 CAP payments for our annual report. And we regularly find and report errors that we suspect to be intentional. In the past three years, we identified 17 such cases of potential frauds. This figure shows that we are actively looking for potential frauds and do find some. In fact, these cases represent a significant share of the 2% error we report for the area of natural resources. We were asked whether we could quantify more precisely what this significant share could be. Could we say how much is the exact amount of fraud in the CAP? The answer is that we don't know with sufficient precision and cannot publish such a figure. In the end, it's not for us to produce a figure on CAP fraud. It is for the Commission and the Member States who are doing all these checks on beneficiaries. They need to improve the data they have on fraud and have a better view of the overall situation. You also asked me about our future plans of for audits, and um, I could mention one that is under preparation, and it is looking at uh, this, the risk of conflict of interests and how they are managed in, in the CAP, but also in the cohesion area. Um, I cannot say much about this report, which is ongoing. I can only say it's about, it will be published towards the end of this year and is likely to be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Thanks for the anticipation. Uh, it's actually, as you said, even in cohesion policy. But uh, we actually um, we actually covered uh, a lot the, the 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 issue of conflict of interest in the uh, the farming subsidies program. Uh, thanks, Christian, for being with us today. And um... thank you as well. I would like to thank you for your attention and interest in our report. So this week, for the flavor of the week, we have an exciting, um, an exciting product, which is also quite useful for this very particular situation of uh, Julia's uh, weird voice. Yeah, exactly. So basically, <coughs> I've been drinking lots of tea. This to is make not. My... A, this is not an effect. Uh, <laughs> really, <coughs> it's. Uh, it's... <coughs> Just to illustrate what I'm what I'm talking about, yeah. I've been drinking lots of herbal teas to make my voice work ish. And obviously, something I came across a lot there uh, is what we're going to talk about, and that is sage. Um, oh, also, uh huh, uh huh. Well, yeah, yeah, we have oh. to do analogic uh, effect. Whoa, tell us more, Julia. Yes, so um, sage actually has a long history of uh, medicinal and culinary use. Um, something more about the medicinal medicinal use uh, later, a fun fact, so stay tuned for that. But, uh, for example, in Britain, sage has for generations uh, been considered as one of the essential herbs, along with parsley, rosemary, and thyme. And if that just put a melody or a song in your head that's no coincidence because this, these are also the exact herbs herbs um, referred to in the song Scarborough Fair so Percy Sage Rosemary and Thyme I'm not going to sing because my voice isn't working but maybe you know what I mean also because we have other three minutes of podcast and we, we don't want to I mean we, we need your you voice. don't want to spend that yeah, listening yeah. to me singing no 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 <laughs> we don't want to because after singing you're going to have no voice so 
Uh, we, I see. Okay. We still need you. Yeah. I was already prepared to be uh, to be angry at you, but yeah. you no, saved it. no, no, no. Um, yeah, and here comes actually an Italy fun fact from me today. Um, instead of Tirado, Sage actually appears um, in the 14th and 15th centuries um, in Lomb Lombard cuisine as a cold sage sauce. Um, yeah, whatever that is. Doesn't <laughs> really sound delicious to me, but um, this is where it appeared in, in yeah. Uh, in wider cuisines, in, in Italian cuisine, sage. Do you know what cold sage sauce is then? I really don't know. <laughs> it sounds more of a German thing, but uh, no, no, um, because it's in English here. I don't know the the Italian. I'm I'm uh, googling while you're speaking. No, but for instance, there's a lot of uh, sage. For instance, uh, fried sage. It's really uh, yeah, yeah. True. I think I've had that. Fried pasta with fried sage at, at an Italian restaurant before. It's quite good. I like it. But yeah, as I said, it's also used as a medical plant. So uh, I've heard that Yara has some, some knowledge about uh, what, what kind of stuff you can do with that. Um, it's not, I, I've heard, <laughs> uh, obviously we had, I've heard, I've heard uh, people told me, friend told me, <laughs> friend told me, uh, that this, uh, this plant may have like same uh, effect as, uh, LSD. What is LSD? Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. This is a family friendly <laughs> podcast. Indeed. Indeed. This is, uh, Yeah. But yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Tell us, uh, tell us more, yeah, about what your friends uh, told you. Um, that's it. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of the story. <laughs> but it's true that it's actually, it's, it's a special type of sage. It's called Salvia divinorum. That's uh, quite rare, but it's actually listed by the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction. Um, I guess as... Julia, Julia's friends told her more. Yeah. <laughs> Friends from the European Monetary Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction told me to look out for people who know that this is uh, similar to LSD. But the question is, is it something that we can buy in the in our supermarkets or just uh, only your friends can provide it with that? Well, it's actually used as a legal herbal um, psychoactive active okay. substance that can have some of the effects of LSD. So it's basically like an, an organic legal version of LSD. LSD. Organic LSD. This is fantastic, guys. It's, it's, uh, and you can also do a very good cold sage uh, sauce, uh, uh, the original uh, recipe from Lombardy, probably. Can this sauce be done from this, uh, this kind yeah, of you yeah. was talking Could about? Could this be an, an organic LSD sauce? I mean... Uh, bio. <laughs> There are friends that have, that have tasted, uh, you know, very, very weird uh, kind of um, food stuff, particularly uh, dessert and sweet. So I assume that we can also do uh, cold sage sauce with this, um, with this particular sage. But thanks, thanks for having introduced us in, in this uh, amazing and exciting uh, new world. That's all from us this week. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna, Jaroslava Buchta, and Julia Dam, with the technical support of Ivi Chiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, 
and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to our Euractive Agri-Food Brief so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Julia Dahm. That's all from us this week and see you next time.